What's going on everyone? Welcome back to Ramblings of the Sea. I'm your host Amr Singh and we're here once again to dive deep into the rabbit hole of history. Today we're taking a journey into the heart of Punjabi history, exploring the rich tapestry of music and culture that has shaped the region and in turn shaped the world. We're privileged to have with us Dr. Radha Kapuria, an assistant professor specialising in South Asian history and the author of Music in Colonial Punjab, Courtesans, Bards and Connoisseurs, 1800-1947. Dr. Kapuria is here to share her insights into the evolution of Punjabi music during the colonial period, the influence of courtesans, bards and connoisseurs, as well as the lasting impact of this crucial era on contemporary Punjabi music. But before we dive in, let me ask you this. Have you ever wondered why the period between 1800 and 1947 is so significant? Or how the British colonial administration impacted the preservation and transformation of traditional Punjabi music? What about the role of gender and caste in the Punjabi musical landscape of the time? Well, stay tuned because we're about to unravel all of this and a lot more. We'll be discussing the intriguing stories of Bibi Mora and Gul Begal, both courtesans and Muslim wives of Ranjit Singh. We'll also look at how the role of courtesans drastically changed over a roughly 150-year period. We'll be debunking myths and uncovering truths like the real story behind Ranjit Singh and the origins of Pulkandri. So, if you're ready to embark on a journey of historical revelations and musical wonders, make sure to watch this until the end. Hit like, leave a comment and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any future journeys down the rabbit hole of history. So, I come from Delhi originally uh, and I was born in a, a Punjabi family who were displaced during partition. So, I was, my grandparents were all born in West Punjab. So, I grew up in Delhi in India but. Uh, I grew up with stories of a home that was lost and a cultural memory which kind of united us with uh, Pakistanis, uh, Pakistani Punjabis. Uh, so it was a very uh, interesting way to grow up because there was a lot of um, hurt and anger towards the other community. So I grew up in a Hindu family, so there was a lot of hurt towards uh, uh, Muslims and it that came from the uh, legacy of partition whereas at the same time there was these cultural ties which connected us to Pakistani culture and my the same grandmother who uh, could be vile towards Muslims would also enjoy Pakistani plays uh, and we heard the same uh, you know we heard uh, Musarat Nazir's Tappe playing at weddings in Delhi uh, in our homes so both these coexisted and it made me very curious to understand uh, the life of of music because music is something and songs really connect us. That is amazing. Um, One thing that caught my eye was that obviously the title says music in colonial Punjab and it covers a period from 1800 to 1947. Now most people probably listening to this when they think of colonial Punjab think of it under the British Raj and obviously 1800 is, is just before it gets annexed so like I guess my question is why did you choose that time period and what does it cover in terms of like what does the book trace over that period of time actually now have a copy of the book which I can uh the last time you were meant to speak this hadn't arrived so I finally have my author copies and it's a great feeling uh, it was music in colonial Punjab was meant to be the subtitle, but the publishers wanted it to be the main title then. Um, and uh, I think that's just a broad period of, you know, 1800 to 1947. Uh, but I think uh, my intention was to look at pre-partition Punjab. Uh, and obviously, this is already a very huge swathe of time. It's, um, you know, it's almost 150 years uh which is uh you know which is already beyond most research uh gamuts and which is why i don't cover everything it's not possible to um but i thought i would just do a bit of background on Maharaja ranjit singh's court because that is what uh you know predated colonialism but it turned out that there was so much material that no one had cared to look at for the ranjit singh period that i ended up doing a whole chapter on Maharaja ranjit singh um, and now others like Kirit James Singh, uh, who's finished his PhD recently at SOAS, has done a whole uh, PhD on Sikh music under during Ranjit Singh's uh, era and other, you know, other such uh, themes. So it's really exciting to have discovered all that. And so, yeah, research is a kind of uh, unexpected, uh, unpredictable journey. 
Just you mentioning Mahdas and Jeet Singh, I'm sure there's so much that you could tell us about, but kind of what are some of the standout characteristics that you would maybe stand out kind of facts that you research just during kind of Jeeting's period related to music, etc. Well, I think at, at the outset, the obvious has to be stated, which is to say that he was a very, uh, you know, profoundly interested connoisseur of the art um, and of, uh, of music and dance in particular. He used to listen to uh, ragis and rababis and equally used to listen to bards and tawaif singing and dancing on a daily basis. Uh, so it was integral to his routine, in a sense, his daily life. But it was also important to his political life. So uh, performances by his very, uh, you know, highly trained and highly uh, well-endowed, uh, well-remunerated courtesans was part of every political negotiation with all his political rivals, especially with the European rivals, like the English East India Company. So this was also curious that these courtesans were ubiquitous. They were everywhere in the record on Ranjit Singh. And yet, you know, the only way in which they had been written about so far was to vilify Ranjit Singh and say, oh, he's just interested uh, in wine and nochkas and he's not serious. But actually, if you look at the, you know, the Persian court chronicles, which I read in translation, uh, in English, uh, it, it shows you that the, these uh, courtesans and their performances were integral to uh, picking up the spectacle of the Sikh state and to represent the martial glory of uh, the Khalsa Raj to outsiders, to whether it's French scientists or, you know, Transylvanian physicians or uh, English politicians visiting the Lahore Darbar. So that in itself was an important thing to highlight and to also say that uh, you know he th there are records of him gifting handsome jagirs or land grants to the courtesans so these were powerful women independent women he even married two courtesans uh, who were muslim and so they kind of uh, you know he ha was happy for them to continue practicing their faith and they became patrons of schools of learning and it was a very cosmopolitan time. This is what really excited me about the Ranjit Singh period. Like, while he was the first Sikh ruler and the first established the first Sikh empire, there was a lot of eclecticism at his court. And when you look at his uh, sort of love stories with the two courtesan wives, uh, Bibi Mora and Gul Begum, you find this very clearly because uh, Bibi Mora also, uh, she donated to temples, but she also... As a Muslim, practicing Muslim, she built mosques and she donated to Islamic schools of learning. So there was, and again, this is something which would um, surprise people not on account of the Sikh Muslim thing, but on account of the courtesans being interested in religion. Because in today's perspective, we look at courtesans as, again, through an immoral lens. We see them simply as being sensuous or, you know, uh, or, or concerned with the pleasures of the senses and the body, but there was a connection uh, during this period and before it with the sacred as well. And that's something we have forgotten. And I hope that my book can hopefully revise our views about that. You've kind of already answered the next question I want to ask you, but I just kind of want to go a little bit deeper, which is obviously there's this, I guess yeah, it's a misunderstanding of Rajit Singh's period and of kind of the role dancers played in in the court per se and obviously as you already said a lot of yeah. it is viewed as being kind of almost um derogatory or or kind of um almost there's almost an assumption that it's it's close it's almost pornographic it's almost kind of it's so um what dirty. is it yeah dirty and it's kind of both like it's it's subhuman almost um now, to a lot of people listening who may to have a better understanding of history, they may kind of see through that, which is obviously there's this, the British writing at the time are kind of, there's this myth of them civilizing all of these different cultures. And obviously, Ranjit Singh being painted as this kind of debauched king who's interested in all this weird and crazy dance obviously helps fulfill that. 
Yeah. How much of that is the case? I, I don't think actually. I think it's inter- almost almost entirely the kind of florid and very uh, excessively, you know, uh, sort of vivid details about Ranjit Singh being super drunk and in you know uh, indulging in pleasures of the flesh and of uh, you know having alcohol and uh, you know some of these people would say he gave us liquid fire. So in a sense, there was this propensity to see both as evidence of uh, of his uh, of basically the trope of the Orientalist monarch, the Orientalist uh, uh, debauched monarch, you know, who needs to be. Therefore, we need to come and replace him, and he is not uh, fit to rule. So that is the underlying uh, message, and that was there in uh, not in all European writing, only a few, but it was. Especially um, uh, John Lawrence uh, kind of wrote these kinds of things and they became very... Henry Lawrence, sorry. Yeah, Henry Lawrence popularized and some others picked it up. Um, but uh, it, it isn't true in the sense, this kind of uh, overtly excessive uh, indulgence, uh, uh, you know, of, of pleasures of, of the flesh and of uh, alcohol. Instead, what we find is that we find courtesans in very serious settings they were part of state procedure. They were seen as, uh, you know, fulfilling an important political role. And this is something which uh, the English or the other Europeans with their very uh, sort of, with a very Western mind, as mindset and with also like increasingly Victorian notions later on in the 19th century, we would tended to view this as a sign of immorality. Um and they could not see uh, South Asian notions of, uh, you know, of of um, how how do you start something auspicious, and courtesans would always be there to to mark any auspicious occasion, not just in terms of politics and political diplomacy and statecraft, but also in personal life. Right, whenever there was a birth or a wedding, it would be marked by inviting courtesans and groups of courtesans to come and sing at your home. Uh, and at many of the Sufi shrines and many of the, uh, you know, sacred shrines in the Mila cultures of Punjab, often courtesans would uh, not just be invited, but they were permanent uh, sort of fixtures at the annual urs or the festivals. They would sing and dance. This is again something that has been forgotten because of this association with immorality and then uh, which is something I can discuss a bit later. The, in the late 19th century, the Punjabis and the Indians themselves took on this Victorian worldview, the reformers, and they led a, a sort of anti-notch campaign to abolish the notch. So when all of this happens, uh, it's uh, the these uh, you know communities of performing women, hereditary performing female uh, communities, are the ones who lose out. And the the um, alarming thing is that even the memory of them being present in public spaces has been erased. Uh, and I mean, Ranjit Singh was, uh, you know, he died in 1839, which is uh, less than 200 years ago. So compared to so many other periods of European history, this is, it's very recent, right? And there's so much... Uh, which is preserved and written about in European history, but in South Asia, we somehow we you know there's, there's there's been so much cultural change that we've not been able to capture that. So I think that was also one of the motivations to do this research. No, definitely, and I'm glad. I'm sure there's lots of people, not just me, who are glad that you have done that because the work is amazing. You have spoken obviously about how, and I'm sure we'll get into it further on about how kind of cultural attitudes have changed and how that's affected not just how we remember dance in Punjab and, and through history, but also kind of it was then kind of uh, eternalized and, ha- and kind of had its own role. But putting that to one side for a second, considering Punjab goes through such changes from 1847 years or how many, 48 years later, then it gets annexed and there's a hundred years old under British rule, which is obviously riddled with all sorts of events such as Jallianwala Bagh and another factors which really would have drastically changed any social political landscape how does or i guess that's a large space of time but briefly like how do those changes in socio-political factors impact 
kind of the roles of courtesans, bards, connoisseurs, and like music. Obviously, I'm sure there were huge, like massive changes, but um, like what are some that you could share? So the original subtitle for my book was um, from Pul Kanjri to Patiala. Uh, you know, music in Colonial Punjab from Pool Country to Patiala. But then I thought, you know, most people will not know what Pool Country is. So I changed it to courtesans, baths, and connoisseurs. Um, and Pool Country, or Tawaif Pool, as it was known in Ranjit Singh's era, was uh, was this this bridge which he built for Bibi Mora, who went on to become uh, his first courtesan wife. Um, and And... You know, it's a there's a lovely story about why he built it for her. Uh, on the, he, she was from Amritsar, so when he would go from Lahore to Amritsar, he would stop on the way to meet her, and she would perform for him. Uh, but there was a sort of canal she had to uh, cross on horseback on the way to this play, meeting place. Uh, and once one day, her silver slipper apparently fell into the canal and she was really upset. And she said to him that if you don't build a bridge here for me to cross safely, I will never uh, perform for you again. So that's the story behind the building of the bridge. And soon over time there, you know, she established a sort of sarovar uh, for travelers who could come and drink water, a serai, which is a traveler's house. And she, of course, as a Muslim, built a mosque. There's a Sikh shrine there there is a shiv hindu temple so again it's very eclectic even today this is on the vaga border today between um india and pakistan uh so i think whole country was built sometime in the early 19th century and it sort of went into ruin fell into ruin with the collapse of the sikh state and uh you know with the coming of colonialism and um one of the people who was you know we know how rani jinda was vilified uh, the youngest queen of Ranjit Singh, who stood up to the East India Company, she was called the dancing girl as well. So the British used this phrase, this terminology, to also vilify um, and attach a negative uh, um, negativity to uh, people who resisted. But one of her right-hand women was Mangla, who was also a dancing girl, and she had the keys to the Toshakana, the treasury. She had a lot of power and. As Priya Dwal shows, you know, uh, in her work on gender and the Sikh empire, one of the first things that Henry Lawrence did was to, you know, pension off um, and sort of send her away to the hills, like send Mangla away because she had that power. Uh, but Ranjit Singh's second courtesan wife, Gul Begum, had one of the most handsome pensions which the East India Company gave amongst all his wives because she had that power while he was alive. And they could see how she could be a potential thorn in their side, like Rani Jinda was. So they ensured they gave her like the 12,000 rupees a year pension at that time. So that just shows you an inkling of how powerful courtesans could be. So from that to the book ends in roughly 1947, there has been a, there was a massive shift from the power of uh, female performers and especially courtesans to this sense of very diminished role of courtesans and in a sense um, uh, the privileging of male virtuosic singers uh, as the face of uh, classical music which is what we see today and that's the reformed version of Indian classical music that we uh, are familiar with uh, and that happened during this time because uh, female singers were very powerful and very respected not just as dancers but as vocalists and also as teachers so they had that status in society uh, and this kind of crumbled over this time. So that's one thing which happened. Uh, and so they are the kind, they are the group that loses out the most, which is why I keep uh, harping on them a little bit. Uh, but also, I think um, the Mirasis, the community of the bards, they also saw many shifts. Um, now, uh, you know, I'm no, by by, in a sense, by laying the blame at the feet of uh, European colonizers I'm not going to uh, minimize the blame that we as South Asians ourselves uh, uh, you know need to take on for for the sort of casteist prejudice towards performing communities so Mirasi is seen as a term of abuse in many Punjabi communities even today or Kanjar is seen as a term of oh, abuse. Wow. I've obviously heard of the, the, the latter word and that's used 
widely within the Punjabi community um, to be derogatory towards women. I've never, like, and this might just be because of the fact that, like, I'm in England rather than, you know, like a more diverse Punjabi community, but I've never actually heard of the first time being used derogatory. I think uh, if you look, look at interviews of, you know, even famous Bollywood uh, actors like Ayushman Khurana, he'll tell you that when he wanted to do... Uh, perform as an actor, one of the things one that his grandmother said is Mira wale kam karne. you know, you don't you don't have to do the uh and this is this kind of this this term was has been used at many people who are outside uh or who are upper caste and who want to pursue music and there's often this family uh opprobrium saying, you know, you don't have to do the work of Mirasis. And especially I think it's especially very uh prominent in Pakistan, mainly because uh, at 1947, the bulk of uh, Punjabi Muslims migrated or had to migrate. Um, and the Miratis are, uh, they're, they're the syncretic community, but they identify primarily as Muslim, even though they can sing bhajans and, you know, the Rababi community are also Muslim, but as we know, they sing Rabad Kirtan. These communities, uh, even though the Miratis, basically identify as Muslim, but they would service different communities. As musicians, they would have the skills to sing different things for all these different communities. So I think uh, for the Mirasis, it was an interesting time. I mean, traditionally, Mirasis have been vilified by Punjabis themselves, by upper caste Punjabis. Um, but I think uh, in some ways, maybe in uh, contrast to what the courtesans faced, the Mirasis saw a volume of interest in their uh, skills and in their knowledge in the colonial period. And this is ironic, and it's because uh, the colonial uh, scholar administrators were deeply interested in folklore. So people like Richard Temple and um, Flora Annie Steele, all of these people have you know, written Legends of Punjab and many others, Charles Finnett. So they would all go to the Mirasis to collect these stains. And very few of them, though, again, there is a disrespect to the Mirasi, very few were interested in the Mirasis themselves. All they were interested in was capturing the folk tales because in the late 19th century, there was a craze with folklore, which translated, uh, you know, which was there in Europe as well. There was an interest in the folklore of Europe and the old folk songs, etc. So that's where the Mirasis had these all these uh, Englishmen and English women, Scotsmen and Scotswomen, depending on who was posted, going to them and recording these folk songs. So uh, the Mirasis uh, were, in a sense, were sought out. And then with the coming up of Indian middle-class families allowing their children or wanting their children to learn music, often Mirasis would also be employed to teach middle-class uh, children the basics of Ram. Oh, so this is something I found that Mr. Ashwini Kumar, who uh, who ran the Harband of Music Festival of Jalandhar in East Punjab, he grew up in Lahore, and his father was one of the first doctors to go and study in England, uh, for Punjab apparently, um, and he was very fond of music, and he employed a mirasi just to teach all his three children the basics of wag. Now the mirasis are very interesting because they are seen as folk musicians, but they had the knowledge, the basics of classical music. And so which is why uh, a Mirasi could teach you rag, but maybe because they were not uh, literate in English or in, uh, you know, in, in the maybe the high vernacular, they couldn't probably explain rag to especially English people or Europeans who were trying to understand in music. So Someone like Annie Wilson, who's a Scotswoman who goes around trying to learn Indian music. The first person who teaches her is a Mirasi, Gulab Muhammad, and she keeps learning from him. But it's not until she meets this, you know, this reformer, this uh, this modernizer of music, who is from, uh, like, he's from Maharashtra. And he comes to Lahore and sets up his first school, the Gandhar Mahavidyale. And he had a very Hindu devotional um, vision for music. Uh, so it's only he he can speak in English and he can explain it to a European mind. So she understands the thanks to Palustar, but the basics have been taught to her by a Mirasi. So Mirasis were in this very fascinating position where they 
was sought out by many people and what's interesting is that uh, how much ever the Arya Samaji Hindu reformers, you know, they later on, they did a lot of like uh, Hindu mission work through movement, uh, very much like the Christian missionaries who were also doing, again, everyone was going to the Mirasis because they these are the guys who could sing. So to, to disseminate their music, you know, to, uh, with the masses and to compete with this Christian missionary style of uh, Evangel evangelical work, you need to go to Mirasis. So the first singers of bhajans in, in the 1870s in Arya Samaj gatherings in Lahore were Mirasis, you know, and this is, uh, this was something that an English commentator remarked upon with great, oh my God, how is there a non, like, you know, non-believer? These are what he said, quote-unquote, Mohammedan singers. So um, it's it's it, this is the kind of culture of Punjab that we have inherited this syncretic, uh, you know, mishmash of identities and music and musicians are a great, great group to research because they constantly uh, subvert those uh, borders and those uh, you know uh, bounds of identity. You spoke we've spoken kind of briefly about Marasis, Lavabis, courtesans, and for those listening, they may be kind of scratching their heads in terms of like. What role do these musicians play and how do they differ? Because for me, Marasis and Rababis kind of sound or seem the same, but I'm sure they're very different. So, like, if you don't mind, in just like a couple of sentences, kind of like, what are the, like, say, the origins of the courtesans and what are their kind of primary functions? And equally with Marasis and Rababis, like, you have already kind of briefly mentioned it, but just to kind of consolidate for everyone listening. Um. So, at the outset, I should say, that there were no fixed uh, labels. And these labels change over time. And Mirasi is a term that becomes popular at this time in the 19th century. Um, the work of Daniel Newman, who did some of the earliest research uh, in the 70s on Indian music, um, shows us that, you know, and so many others like Lowell Lieberger and um, uh, Michael Nijavan and uh, Balbir Singh Kaval, who was an infert, uh, they've all kind of shown that originally the term was dhadi, dhadi. And over time it became, uh, in Punjab, it became mirasi. But often mirasi and rababi could be used interchangeably. I think perhaps rababi is, you know, very uh, explicitly connected to the instrument, the rabab, whereas mirasis are just a general community and I think if you're born, if you were born in a Mirasi family, you would know how to do vocal singing for sure. Whereas, uh, and if you're a boy, you would also be taught um, <clears throat> instruments. So I think uh, rababis would be specialized uh, specialists in playing the rabab and also singing shabad kirtan. Whereas Mirasis would be just more generally uh, the community as well. But I think uh, over time, I think the rababis became uh, their own kind of. Um, subcast as well so that's the uh that's the mirasis and the courtesans were there were two categories the tawaif who were more elite and anjurs or the kanjuris who were more uh, subaltern more low status and i think um the kanjuris would be the common dancing girls on the street and whose functions could double up as providing sexual services as well um and they would often be Sometimes they would often be accompanied by mirasis uh, playing the instruments while they danced or, and the mirasis singing while they danced. Whereas the elite courtesans were tawaif. Um, and, uh, you know, there were so many of them at Ranjit Singh's court and, um, and at other courts like Patiala. Uh, so so there are, these are the categorizations. And again, I think connoisseurs are interesting and especially in Punjab because usually you think, that classical rag music is appreciated only by an aristocratic or elite connoisseur. But in Punjab, we find that actually uh, there was a popular uh, popular appetite for uh, music and all kinds of music. So these distinctions that we have today of folk music and classical did not exist in the same way at that time. I mean... It, the fact that you sing you sang rag at a certain time in the darbar of a you know of a king, that that concept existed. But if you went to a popular performance, there would be all kinds of things being performed, 
And in fact, Drupad uh, was very popular. There used to be Drupad Melas that people would go to listen to. Uh, so at Harwanlab, which I mentioned before in Jalandhar in East Punjab, it started as a as a Drupad Mela, um, you know, and there were performers of Drupad in Punjab who were quite skilled who would come and sing there. Um, and, uh, you know, there's another strand of, uh, you know, Sikh music called Partal Gaiki, which derives from Drupad. So Drupad and Bhai Baldeep Singh's work shows this very clearly, how Drupad was also popular and, you know, uh, there was an appetite for this. So in terms of genres of music, Drupad was also kind of displaced by more by Khayal, which was shorter. Drupad is a very long, languorous kind of uh, format. And this this by Baldeep Singh and others have already uh, shown this. So, um, so that's how. So connoisseurs also in Punjab were common people were also quite interested in music and were connoisseurs. And this is again... Um, I think, and we have partition to blame for these ideas that Punjabis are very uh, boorish or, you know, uh, loud and they don't understand high culture. You know, again, I mean, uh, these are notions that come from other regions of India where, say, in Bengal, there is a tradition of, uh, you know, taste in music and elites uh, patronizing music. And again, in Maharashtra, Bombay. But Punjab had a different story, and I think there was this popular uh, appetite for music, which uh, is something that we have, over time, is a memory that's been lost. Which nicely kind of leads us on to the next question, which is how does the colonial, the legacy of music in colonial Punjab influence contemporary Punjabi music? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, um, I think, uh, I think, more than, uh, I think the immediate impact which we can see on our music is more post-colonial. But of course, post-colonial had its roots in the colonial. So what I mean by that is that uh, in the post-colonial era, there was this division over time which took, which emerged by the 60s or 70s between Indian Punjabi and Pakistani Punjabi music. Um, and so Virinder Kalra and others have shown how in Indian Punjab, because the state was interested in upholding this idea of folk music, folk music was patronized by the state and became the kind of image um, of Punjabi music in amongst uh, Indian Punjabis and in India. Um, and this is uh, this the root of this idea of Punjab as a folk land and an agricultural land also goes back to colonialism. So you know the the canal colonies and the the way in which a lot of big parts of Punjab were brought under agriculture um, is something, and this notion of Punjab being very folk and very rural and rural idyll uh, was something that the uh, the East India Company and others wanted to perpetuate. And uh, Navio Gill has argued, he's a wonderful scholar, uh, who's argued that there was literally an attempt to convert swords into plowshares so this martial Sikh identity to convert it into a very rustic jut and you know this uh, hardy peasant image uh, so that image is something that was uh, rigidified solidified in the colonial period and that shows up in the Indian Punjabi musical uh, setting right so folk music uh, which is great we have a very rich tradition of folk music and I'm not uh trying to uh, put that down, but I'm just trying to say that there is a lot more to uh, musical uh, traditions of Punjab. Um, and in Pakistan, because of uh, the sort of Islamic roots of Pakistani identity, the Kavali music became the kind of genre which took precedence over all others. So these two today, even today, and of course, if you are, uh, if you know, if you go to Gurdwaras and you're practicing Sikh and you enjoy listening to Kirtan, Kirtan, so it's these three genres that kind of represent Punjab in a sense, uh, and uh, in a sense, they, you know, to the detriment of rag music and these very uh, Punjabi versions of rag dari music or Punjabi gharanas, which seem to be. Uh, fighting to survive in some ways. So I think that's uh, that's the kind of evolution of 
what happened with music. And as I said, partition had a lot to do with us forgetting this uh, history of Ragdari music in, in Punjab. We um, briefly spoke about kind of um, the role that music played under Dinjitin's period earlier on. And I guess we've now kind of jumped ahead into like kind of the modern day. But during the British Raj, during the bit in the middle, how did the British administration impact the preservation and transformation of Punjabi music, whatever that might be, whether that is courtesans or like the courtesans on the corner or marasis or the babis or whatever, like how are the British, what role do the British play in influencing this type of music? Obviously you spoke earlier about how there's a lot of people during the 19th century turning up and talking to marasis and getting these folk stories and taking them back home. But like what are other ways perhaps which the British administration in whatever form influences music? So I think, yeah, I did speak about the wider social impact on, as you said, on worldviews and how this the sense of uh, seeing these traditional musician and the wife communities as negative is something that we owe to colonialism. Um, but the single most uh, visible impact of colonialism is, of course, the harmonium, which has now been Indianized, but it came through Punjab, through uh, Christian mission work, and was adapted then and was adopted by the Punjabis and then taken and then Indianized in a sense. So the harmonium we use today is not the Western uh, instrument that arrived 200 years ago or whenever, you know. So it, it's not the same, but it did arrive uh, with with uh, Christian mission uh, work. So I think there was this, one of the most direct impacts has been through the attempt of Christian missionaries to engage with Punjabi music. And as a scholar, like, I mean, we can have debates about the, you know, the ethics and the morality of evangelical work and all of that is separate. But I think it's it led to some very interesting and productive cultural exchange as well. So there is a very rich tradition of Punjabi Zabur, which started in this period, like the 1880s. Uh, there was a man called Imaduddin Shahbaz, Reverend I.D. Shahbaz, who was a very prominent Punjabi Christian who helped to write the Psalms in Punjabi, the Christian Psalms. And it's and there are very thriving Punjabi uh, Christian communities from uh, mainly from uh, West Punjab and Pakistan, but also in India, who still sing those zabur. And in fact, I've uh, you know, I live in Manchester, and uh, my uh, beautician uh, is is Punjabi Christian, and she talks about how the services on Sunday uh, are the so the singing is all in Punjabi, even though many many of the sort of Desi Christians who go are not Punjabi; they speak in Urdu, but the singing is all in Punjabi because of the work of I.D. Shahbaz and. And of course, he worked with the sort of uh, white missionaries who wanted to convert it into Indian languages. Uh, and interestingly, even amongst the mission missionaries who wanted to make these songs Punjabi, it was women. It was white women who were at the forefront of converting it into Punjabi and trying to make it more palatable to local people. Whereas most of the time, the the majority of white missionary men were not interested in, uh, you know, they were against this idea of, it was seen as heathenization or uh, message, right? So, but the, these women were the ones who were going and connecting with the musicians. And so I found that really interesting. That is also there in the chapter on colonialism. Um, so Punjabi Zabur is a very rich legacy of that time. And even across, I think I've heard uh, Indian Christian churches, Zabur is known and it's sung in Punjabi because because we had this huge creative output. That's amazing. It's, 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 it's kind of um, insane when you think of like the results of some of these exchanges, like you would never have necessarily guessed. Um, I had a question that's now completely slipped my mind. Um, and it was really interesting, I promise. Uh, God, anyway, I'll hopefully we'll come back to it and then I'll be able to, oh yeah, sorry, it's come back. Um, obviously post-partition, and I guess it, the origins of this are pre-partition with colonialism, but there's this drive towards 
and the British are, are, are obviously pivotal in this, which there's a drive towards connecting like one religion with one language and kind of Hinduism with Hindi and Punjabi with Sikhs and etc. It wasn't one of the questions that I had prepared, but just as we're talking, like, and, and you were just discussing how the work of this one man writing the Psalms of Punjabi still has an impact today within Christian Punjabi communities. It then made me wonder what role did that kind of emphasis of one religion and one language have on the development and also the understanding of music because even today like even when you're talking like i'm sat here going i don't know any like literally any of this in relation to punjabi cultural music yeah. rababis are kind of heard of obviously because of by madonna yeah. we've heard of obviously because like the seats yeah. and and that's just kind of natural with Kwanli, obviously because of nasrat fati ali khan being probably yeah. the biggest punjabi export Yes. In in the like I don't know since Sidhu Musi Ali, so yeah, yeah, so like putting that all to one side, how does that kind of agenda or one language, one religion play into the evolution of or the changing of music and its role in Punjab? No, it's a really really good question. Um, in fact, uh, you know the singer scholar Dr. Madan Gopal Singh, who's in Delhi, who's really amazing, has has posed this question to me to say what whatever has happened to uh, all the Punjabi Hindu bhajans and that is that hits to the heart of your question on uh, you know one language one religion and this was again you know as we know in colonialism uh, there are stories of Punjabi Hindus being told by uh, Arya Samaji reformers to tell the census official to say that my language is Hindi, not Punjabi, and they could not speak a word of Hindi, and they're telling the census officially in Punjabi that Tadi Pasha Hindi you know. And today, and the negative legacy of that is today is my generation, uh, who grew up with their parents speaking to us only in Hindi and English, and we can't speak fluent Punjabi in the same way. In this is especially in India and in Pakistan, it's the same with Urdu and English. So many Punjabis are not speaking. But anyways, that's besides the point. I think this sense of um, uh, different kinds of uh, music to do with different communities, is, is, isn't is that what your question was? Yeah, yeah. Basically, like how you, you kind of partly answered it with the example of kind of how these Hindu bhajans have kind of disappeared from collective memory. But I guess in other ways, or are there any other ways perhaps that you could share with how this drive for one language, one religion, or the, at least that association has impacted um, music in Punjab? Yeah. So some of the earliest Arya Samaji reformers uh, was like, there was this woman, my Bhagwati, who preached in Hindi and wrote in Hindi, but she, she was Punjabi. And one of her first booklets was rewriting Sichmiya and these songs, which are very lusty and sung on weddings, women's songs, and repurposing them to pious and divine purposes. So she has written this entire booklet of songs for weak-minded women, which, which is the Punjab. it's the same melody, it's the Punjabi song, it's the Punjabi Sichni, but she's changed it into a prayer for Paramatma and, you know. So... Uh, so that, that, that's one thing that happened. But over time, it became that Hindus would only sing in Hindi. Uh, we still do have, of course, Punjabi Hindus singing some bhajans. But the memory of these older bhajans has kind of dwindled with this whole emphasis on uh, one language, one religion. Um, and uh, I think in the uh, Punjabi Muslim context as well, uh, I think in Pakistan, they're alive. But there is a memory which of, of that that kind of musical matrix that's forgotten, uh, you know, in India. Like, we may not think of uh, Naat and other... There are so many other genres of Islamic music uh, which were also sung in Punjabi. And those are also lost. So Kavali is just one, right? There were so many others, like, you know, the Shia Muslims and their on Muharram and the Marsias they sing. So there would be different kind of those in Punjabi as well. So there is a lot of research to be done. And those who are listening, especially uh, in India and Pakistan, there's a lot more to be excavated and preserved, I think, especially by doing oral history and going out in the field and seeing what, uh, and kind of reverse the uh, 
agenda of the colonial scholar administrators who went mainly to uh, record and just uh, uh, advance their careers, you know, and to be like, you know, as part of colonial governance. There's is now an urgency to preserve these uh, folk forms and these musical forms. Um, I just realized that I didn't answer your question on how does what's the impact on today's musicians and connoisseurs. I think uh, I think one of the biggest impacts is this uh, masculinity and this sort of idea of the male musician, which is something that has emerged through the course of the 20th century, I think. And this sense of, you know, this very gendered divide um, is something which we see in pop music. What we've forgotten are those Saval Jawab duets, which often would be sung, which were popular, say, in the 70s or 80s. But today, because of the pop star and one single musician, it's become just one singer, right? Those other forms of Saval Jawab music have been forgotten. Some of them are preserved in the Young India Archive, which is at the British Library, uh, which are these old gramophone records, where you have some of these singers who are doing these duets, which are so charming to listen to. So those are the old kinds of um, songs which uh, and genres which are not found today in today's pop music. Uh, we are, I mean, we do see something new or alternative is in, in, in the rise of Chamar pop in India, where Ginni Mahi and others are uh, positively embracing their Chamar identity and they sing, you know, songs like Danger Chamar and others. Uh, you know, they... Uh, actively uh, champion their Chamar identity because again Chamar has been a term of vilification and abuse and in Pakistan you have songs like Mehmarasi, Marasi which uh, Hassan uh, Nawaz and uh, Zoneb Zahid have uh, made you know so there is this sense of uh, with social media with more political awareness and sensitivity people are uh, destigmatizing these terms which is great to see um, so yeah that's the impact on the present no, no, no. Thank you for, for both of those answers. Just kind of um, bringing back one of the questions that we said we'd discuss earlier. Well, we said we'd discuss it later on, but earlier on, which is now later on, if that makes sense. Um, which is obviously the role that, or, or the understanding of how society is viewing of gender and how that changes over time. So obviously we, we go from a period of highly respected, highly political, the highly rich courtesans to a modern day view of um it I'd, I'd like almost a very derogatory view of of women in that same role and even looking back at uh these courtesans even on modern day assumptions already are paying a particular image and, and a bias before we even actually look into it what role does gender play and how is how does that change because obviously it seems from the beginning it's almost a complete reversal to what we have now. Is that entirely down to colonialism? Obviously, you alluded earlier that we internalize a lot of the Victorian attitudes ourselves, and as a result, we've kind of continued colonialism to a degree. Um, but, like, what role does gender play and kind of what's happening during this period? Yeah. So, that's a great question. Um, I think I'll answer this uh, based on I can speak most, like, the, the most detailed answer I can give is with regard to um, the Punjabi Hindus, mainly because um, there's a lot of discussion around gender in the, and role of music when it comes to the Punjabi Hindus. Um, and I'll speak about the Muslims and Sikhs also briefly, but uh, mainly, I think, I mentioned Paluskar, who came from Maharashtra to Lahore, and he had this agenda for Hindu devotional music. Um and I spoke of my Bhagwati, who wrote these songs, you know, repurposed the Sitniya. Um, but I think uh, the aim of Panuskar was to make sure that middle class, upper caste Hindu women would learn how to sing and would sing bhajans and pious songs in public. And the only way that these people thought they can lure or attract middle class women is by vilifying courtesans and vilifying mirasis and saying, oh, this is a Dev Vidya or, a, you know, knowledge of God. And it's over time been uh, sullied by these groups. Whereas, in fact, these were the groups who had kept it alive and, you know, who were the possessors of this knowledge. Uh, and so you have women like Dev Ki Sood, 
who becomes the first Punjabi woman to write a primer on music in Hindi uh, from Amritsar in the 13th. So these are the kind of middle class women who then uh, perform classical music and mostly connected to bhajan and uh, temple context. So that becomes the kind of only context uh, in which music is palatable uh, and especially for women to perform it. You know, you have to you have to show that you are a married, uh, middle-class, pious woman if you want to perform in public, whether you perform bhajan or you perform classical music, right? So that becomes the defining parameters. And it's the only parameter in which women are legitimately allowed to perform. So that is the impact on gender. I mentioned earlier on how Moving to the Oskins, the only kind of real Punjab-related evidence I could find, and I'm sure we can find more, it's just that I didn't have time to finish within three and a half years of PhD research. Uh, the, the evidence was uh, there was a very unique bill in 1940s called the Muslim the, the Music at Muslim Shrines Bill. And the only purpose of this bill was to outlaw female singers and female dancers from Sufi shrines because it was seen as women's presence. And one of the uh, people who spoke in the Punjab Legislative Assembly was, uh, uh, this was debated by Muslims mainly. And one of them who was also a, a very deeply being Muslim, he said, why don't we ban all musicians? Why do you want to keep the male musicians, but you know, throw out the female musicians? So he didn't raise that point. So again, gender becomes really important at this time. And that is tied to wider things, you know, wider developments due to colonialism, which is a whole other story, right? Um, so that's why this gender becomes deeply tied to music and performance of music. And in fact, there were debates on within how many miles radius can you allow female singers to be around crying? And then some people said, but if there's a wedding or a birth, people will invite courtesans to sing. You can't stop them from inviting them into their homes. So it was all these kinds of fascinating debates. And I think now we have, uh, you know, female Kirtan uh, singers coming out very uh, visibly in many parts of the world, including in Indian Punjab. So it's growing now. There always were uh, female uh, uh, Shabad singers, but again, it was uh, less and muted. But I think it's now becoming more, uh, more uh, pronounced. So... Yeah, I think this is gender is definitely one of the most thorny issues when it comes to music and performance. Yeah, yeah no, it's interesting because I'm not sure whether the rule is still enforced at Harmandar's time, but they didn't used to let female musicians. Um, so I'm, I, I think it may still be the case. I'm not quite sure. I don't know whether it's changed, but last time I checked, they weren't allowing. And again, it goes against every grain in seek ethos right like as in it makes no sense whatsoever but uh, again it's it's a fact or it was something i think it's still the case i'm hoping it's changed but i haven't checked so like that don't hold me debates recently i remember there was uh yeah yeah and then debated on the harmonium certainly i remember very recently yeah. yes yeah. i mean yeah. i guess you already discussed how caste is is being um kind of almost re-owned and it's being taken the, like it's almost the identity is being almost taken in the hands of the people who it's being put on rather than them allowing just to be labeled with it they're almost defining it themselves but you kind of uh, briefly spoke about how a lot of these groups were almost casts in them their own right how does the role of caste impact then um the development of music because obviously you've spoken just now about how it was turned by middle-class women into something that was pious and rich and, and given all of these kind of positive christian virtues um what role does caste play and I, I i guess we've we we know where it ends with people kind of reowning it and and taking it on their own terms but how does it start and how does that develop I don't know how, I mean, I, I don't think I'd be equipped to go back into time and say exactly how it started. Um, but um, I think uh, caste is such a, I mean, it's it's such a, it's sad, but it's such an organizing principle of uh, life on the subcontinent. 
Um, and I think uh, speaking of the Mirasis, they would often, they were not just musicians, they were storytellers. And more importantly, they were also genealogists. So they used to keep the family genealogies and often they would be responsible for setting up marriage, you know, matches, like connecting families on weddings. So they had all these special, these specialized roles to play in the functioning of uh, village life. Uh, uh, and and uh, so they had these three roles, right? Storytellers, genealogists, and musician. And musician and storyteller went hand in hand. So the fact that they were genealogists tells you about how powerful their oral memory was. And South Asia has very strong oral traditions. And communities like the Mirasis are at the heart of uh, you know, uh, uh, preserving that. And I guess that's what these colonial administrators recognize in going for the Mirasis and collecting some of their stories. Um, and I think it's, uh, but at the same time, like I said, while they recognized how powerful the Mirasis are at the same time, they didn't give them any agency or any sort of real voice in the stuff they published. And in fact, colonial policy, as we know, re-entrenched and made caste hierarchies eat work. So, for example, if you had to stand for election, municipal elections in Lahore in the 1890s, you could not belong to a so-called lower caste. So you couldn't belong to a Mirasi or a Chamar or a Butcher or a Kanjar or any of these castes. So in some senses, colonialism uh, uh, pandered to upper caste prejudices as well. So, um, so, so, and and that kind of has uh, percolated down. But of course, in India now we have, after forty seven and you know Dr. Ambedkar, there was this attempt to, of course, untaxability is is illegal, but it's still quite hard to uh, fight and erase caste prejudice at this, uh, at this very everyday level. Um, so I think that's how I would answer the question on caste. Five uh, and not cast were not cast in the same way. So they, you know, because the wife is a bit more open-ended as a category. You could be born into it. You, your mother could be a wife, but equally there could be people who could join the profession. So it was not as dominated by birth as, say, being born into Mirasi caste was. Um, so this is how I would answer the question on how caste affects musicians yes so is that i guess why then in the modern day people often say that one of maharaj and jeet singh ji's wives was a kanjar and they imply it in the derogatory sense because she comes yeah. from that yeah and right and they don't say it about the wife yeah. that came from the wife because obviously to them that's yeah, yeah okay it's been clubbed together and yeah and, and the clubbing together happened with colonial policy so there were all these contagious diseases act where all uh, public women, whether they were elite tawaif or a more common kanjari, would be labeled together as one. And the difference would not be appreciated. And tawaif's uh, uh, knowledge of high literature, because tawaif would be well-versed in poetry, of, you know, in poetry and, and very literate. They were a literate community. That's the other thing. What we do find is, you know, if you look at uh, Dr. Leitner's report on education in colonial Punjab, he noted that even the most common dancing girl has some knowledge of writing, reading and writing. So again, these were women who were traditionally, well, the ones allowed to read and write. So gender is really interesting because middle class women and upper caste women were for the longest time not allowed to read and write as well. So I think it kind of, these groups like the wife and country, when you look at their history, it opens up uh, a reflection on wider social prejudice as well, doesn't it? No, no, definitely. Just coming to the last kind of few questions, one, one question that I think is probably screaming out to a lot of people listening is, how does the role of nationalism and obviously Indian independence in play with uh, music, especially in Punjab, because obviously we have Jalimwala Bagh Hapar and we have kind of Bhagat Singh and Udham Singh and we have this rich tradition of fighting for independence. And equally, come to think of it, a lot of how a lot of say my generation's understanding of say Bhagat Singh may come from movies or songs, which have glorified his legacy in a particular way. How then does that all kind of tie into the evolution and the kind of development of music in Punjab? There is 
there is certainly a lot of evidence uh, in the 30s and 40s of Punjabi songs written for the nation. So in Fanatis, so Call Me Geet and things like this. Uh, and in fact, one of the books found in Bhagat Singh's, uh, 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 you know, his, the last few things found in, was it Bhagat Singh or another revolution? I think it was Bhagat Singh, was Call Me Geet, which was written by uh, Gurandita Khanna, who had also written a song called, uh, a book called Jange Jange Punjabi Geet. Again, so this guy was also writing pious songs for women, uh, you know. So by the 30s, this idea had kind of, uh, become stronger. My Bhagwati was repurposing Sitriya in the 1890s. 40 years later, by the 20s and 30s, the Indian nationalist movement uh, is quite, uh, you know, is, is 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 on the high, is on the rise. And so, so that also, um, uh, music is also songs, nationalist songs are being written at this time. Uh, many of them are performed by Tawai. And the earliest gramophone recordings of these songs are by women who are uh, courtesans. Um, so again, I mean, there is a there are there were there was a Tawaif Sabha, uh, not in Punjab but somewhere else. I think in UP, who was formed of courtesans uh, who wanted to contribute to Gandhi's fund. Now Gandhi was was very conflicted because he had this his own morality, and uh, he didn't know how to deal with these women. But there were these women who were. Uh, obviously part of the nationalist struggle and, you know, their voices certainly can't be uh, erased or dumbed down. So I think um, there was participation from all groups for, you know, against colonialism, uh, even if not in uh, ways that we are aware of or that made it to the big pages of history. No, definitely. My penultimate question then, um, and the last of kind of the serious question, so to speak, um, what impact does kind of technological advancements have on, I guess, not just the development of music, but also the dissemination of music? I think technology, not just in terms of the technology of uh, transmission, which is, like you said, radio, television, uh, or gramophone. Uh, so I don't really touch on the gramophone uh, era in the book because it's it's such a rich period and uh, there's, there was so so much that I felt I couldn't do justice to it. So that's not there in this book. But I, I think I look at technology in terms of the arrival of mass printing and the dissemination of uh, song texts and of kissas, which have songs about different things. So there is that sense of reaching out to a wider public, which happens in this period uh, through printing and literacy um, and, uh, and the gramophone, of course. So there is, uh, it's an interesting time because, you know, technology is arriving uh, in some ways, like new technology, I should say, is arriving and is changing the the uh, soundscape of Punjab. So the things you can hear, imagine with the gramophone, there is music coming out of this little speaker, which is something which was not possible before. So it's, um, and you know, this it, it, it enters and now the loudspeaker as well in rural Punjab. It's there on every corner and there's songs called by Surinder Khan called like loudspeaker Ali Mundaya. I think if we look at gramophone, I think the sad thing is the period I study and I not looked at gramophone. So there's no way of knowing how these people sounded. It's all in the... But as I said, there is stuff at the Young India Archive uh, uh, on... Uh, Young India collection on the British Library's website, which people can go and listen to. But then those singers, I don't find records of them in the written record. Or maybe I need to do more research to find out who these people were. So there was uh, this one woman, Badrunisa Begum, who sung beautiful songs, but there is no mention of her anywhere else. So it's like an elusive piece of ephemera where you're wondering, who is this woman? And she sings L. And she's singing in Punjabi, and uh, it's one of those mysteries, right? It's like lost bits of time. So it's uh, it's hard. It's the challenge of being a historian, I think. Well, hopefully, or or maybe someone listening will do a little bit of research and get in touch and be like, "Look, I found this. Maybe this will help." And and hopefully that 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 does help you. My last question, and it's not it's not as serious as any of the other questions, but for someone who studied. Uh, the kind of the development or transmission of music throughout 150 years um yeah 150 years almost 
if you could meet any historical figure from the period that you covered from Punjab's music scene, who would it be and why? But also, what would be the one question you'd ask them? Well, I would like to meet Bibi Mora, who was the powerful, you know, first uh, first courtesan, courtesan wife of Ranjit Singh. And, you know, she was named Mora because apparently she could dance like a peacock. So I would very much like to attend one of those performances uh, and ask her who trained her, where she learned her uh, skills and just have a chat to her about music and religion and the arts, I guess. <laughs> no, I will take that answer. I think that's absolutely valid. Um, I have got to the end of all the questions that I wanted to ask you. I just wanted to double check. Is there anything that you think is worth mentioning or something that we haven't covered? Because obviously I don't want to miss anything out. Um, no, I think uh, the only thing I want to mention is that uh, the one of the chapters in my book is entirely on Mirassis. And it looks at uh, a very fascinating kissa in Punjabi uh, written by a police constable. It's essentially a rant against Mirassis. So it's really colorful and it's really interesting to read. So I've got translations and some transcriptions there. But it's also it's trying to reform the Mirassis and it's saying Baz Mirassi put Shaitan, Hujat Sunan. So it's it's saying Mirassis are bad in XYZ ways. Like in, in so many ways they are bad. And it keeps saying they're bad because they argue they're bad. So and that shows us how actually Mirassis are powerful. They're powerful because they argue, because uh, they know so much about you. They can speak in riddles. So I think it's a really interesting uh, text to look at. But I think that's the only thing I thought was left out. No, thank you for mentioning that. I can obviously just say thank you for taking the time out. I think we've just spent like over an hour or so recording. Um, I've absolutely loved it. So I can only just say thank you for that. No, most welcome. And you can buy an ebook um, of this online. For some reason, it's been priced out of most pockets. So if you can ask your library, if you're in an academic institution to order it, I think the price will come down in a few months, I hope. But it'll be more affordable. And I'm sorry it wasn't in my hands, the price of the book. So. No, no, that's absolutely understandable. And, and thank you, obviously, for, for, for doing this, because I've been looking forward to it. So no, thank you for that. Thank you, Amar. And that's the end of another intriguing podcast episode. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating this podcast. A massive shout out to our awesome YouTube members, Jazz Dylan, N Singh, Gary Purmar, Gurpreet Dunjal, Radha G. Kaur, Hunter Hill, Amandavir Mandir, Not Dave, and Raj Saran, Vishal Koldar, Sanji, Jagraj, Final Inc., Rushiman, Parinda Singh, and A Little History of the Sikhs. Let's not also forget our amazing Patreon members, including Hernan Pazano, Jazz Dylan, Gurpreet Singh, Gurdit Bath, Anishmar, Ramneet Gaur, Rav Singh, Ramneet Gaur, Yasmin Jaswal, Gagan Singh, Garpreet Dunjal, and Rajvinder Kaur. If you're passionate about the work I'm doing and want to support it, consider becoming a paid YouTube member to unlock some cool features or join our Patreon community. You can find the links in the description below. Thanks again for tuning in, and I'll hopefully see you in the next video. Bye!